Chapter 2 of The Children of the Abbey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. The Children of the Abbey by Regina Maria Roche. Chapter 2, Part 1. Canst thou bear cold and hunger? Can these limbs framed for the tender offices of love endure the bitter gripes of smarting poverty? When in a bed of straw we shrink together, and the bleak winds shall whistle round our heads, wilt thou talk to me thus, thus hush my cares, and shelter me with love? Otway Fitzalan, the father of Amanda, was the descendant of an ancient Irish family, which had, however, unfortunately attained the summit of its prosperity long before his entrance into life, so that little more than a name, once dignified by illustrious actions, was left to its posterity. The parents of Fitzalan were supported by an employment under government, which enabled them to save a small sum for their son and only child, who at an early period became its sole master, by their dying within a short period of each other. As soon as he had in some degree recovered the shock of such calamities, he laid out his little pittance in the purchase of a commission, as a profession best suiting his inclinations and finances. The war between America and France had then just commenced, and Fitzalan's regiment was among the first forces sent to the aid of the former. The scenes of war, though dreadfully affecting to a soul of exquisite sensibility, such as he possessed, had not power to damp the ardour of his spirit, for, with the name, he inherited the hardy resolution of his progenitors. He had once the good fortune to save the life of a British soldier. He was one of a small party who, by the treachery of their guides, were suddenly surprised in a wood through which they were obliged to pass to join another detachment of the army. Their only way in this alarming exigence was to retreat to the fort from whence they had but lately issued. Encompassed as they were by the enemy, this was not achieved without the greatest difficulty. Just as they had reached it, Fitzalan saw far behind them a poor soldier who had been wounded at the first onset just overtaken by two Indians. Yielding to the impulse of compassion in which all idea of self was lost, Fitzalan hastily turned to his assistance, and flinging himself between the pursued and the pursuers, he kept them at bay till the poor creature had reached a place of safety. This action, performed at the imminent hazard of his life, secured him the lasting gratitude of the soldier, whose name was Edwin the same that now afforded an asylum to his daughter. Edwin had committed some juvenile indiscretions, which highly incensed his parents. In despair at incurring their resentment, he enlisted with a recruiting party in their neighbourhood. But accustomed all his life to peace and plenty, he did not by any means relish his new situation. His gratitude to Fitzalan was unbounded, he considered him as the preserver of his life, and, on the man's being dismissed, who had hitherto attended him as a servant, 
entreated he might be taken in his place. This entreaty Fitzalan complied with. He was pleased with Edwin's manner, and, having heard the little history of his misfortunes, promised, on their return to Europe, to intercede with his friends for him. During his stay abroad, Fitzalan was promoted to a captain-lieutenancy. His pay was his only support, which of necessity checked the benevolence of a spirit open as day to melting charity. On the regiment's return to Europe, he obtained Edwin's discharge, who longed to re-enter upon his former mode of life. He accompanied the penitent himself into Wales, where he was received with the truest rapture. In grief for his loss, his parents had forgotten all resentment for his errors, which, indeed, had never been very great. They had lost their two remaining children during his absence, and now received him as the sole comfort and hope of their age. His youthful protector was blessed with the warmest gratitude. Tears filled his fine eyes as he beheld the pleasure of his parents, and the contrition of the sun, and he departed with that heartfelt pleasure which ever attends and rewards an action of humanity. He now accompanied his regiment into Scotland. They were quartered at a fort in a remote part of that kingdom. Near the fort was a fine old abbey, belonging to the family of Dunreath. The high hills which nearly encompassed it were almost all covered with trees, whose dark shades gave an appearance of gloomy solitude to the building. The present possessor, the Earl of Dunreath, was now far advanced in life. Twice had he married, in expectation of a male heir to his large estates, and twice he had been disappointed. His first lady had expired immediately after the birth of a daughter. She had taken under her protection a young female, who, by unexpected vicissitudes in her family, was left destitute of support. On the demise of her patroness, she retired from the abbey to the house of a kinswoman in its vicinity. The Earl of Dunreath, accustomed to her society, felt his solitude doubly augmented by her absence. He had ever followed the dictates of inclination, and would not disobey them now. Ere the term of mourning was expired, he offered her his hand, and was accepted. The fair orphan, now triumphant mistress of the abbey, found there was no longer occasion to check her natural propensities. Her soul was vain, unfeeling, and ambitious, and her sudden elevation broke down all the barriers which prudence had hitherto opposed to her passions. She soon gained an absolute ascendancy over her lord, she knew how to assume the smile of complacency and the accent of sensibility. Forgetful of the kindness of her late patroness, she treated the infant she had left with the most cruel neglect, a neglect which was, if possible, increased on the birth of her own daughter, as she could not bear that Augusta, instead of possessing the whole, should only share the affection and estates of her father. She contrived by degrees to alienate the former from the innocent Malvina, and she trusted she should find means to deprive her of the latter. Terrified by violence and depressed by severity, the child looked dejected and unhappy, and this appearance, Lady Dunreath made the Earl believe, proceeded from sulkiness and natural ill-humour. 
Her own child, unrestrained in any wish of her heart, was, from her playful gaiety, a constant source of amusement to the Earl. Her mother had taken care to instruct her in all the little endearments which, when united with infantine sweetness, allure almost imperceptibly the affections. Malvina, ere she knew the meaning of sorrow, thus became its prey. But in spite of envy or ill-treatment, she grew up with all the graces of mind and form that had distinguished her mother. Her air was at once elegant and commanding, her face replete with sweetness, and her fine eyes had a mixture of sensibility and languor in them, which spoke to the feeling soul. Augusta was also a fine figure, but unpossessed of the winning graces of elegance and modesty which adorned her sister, her form always appeared decorated with the most studied art, and her large eyes had a confident assurance in them that seemed to expect and demand universal homage. The warriors of the fort were welcome visitants at the abbey, which Lady Dunreath contrived to render a scene of almost constant gaiety by keeping up a continual intercourse with all the adjacent families and entertaining all the strangers who came into its neighbourhood. Lord Dunreath had long been a prey to infirmities, which at this period generally confined him to his room, but though his body was debilitated, his mind retained all its active powers. The first appearance of the officers at the Abbey was at a ball given by Lady Dunreath, in consequence of their arrival near it. The Gothic apartments were decorated and lighted up with a splendour that at once displayed taste and magnificence. The lights, the music, the brilliancy and unusual gaiety of the company all gave to the spirits of Malvina an agreeable flutter they had never before experienced, and a brighter bloom than usual stole over her lovely cheek. The young co-heiresses were extremely admired by the military heroes. Malvina, as the eldest, opened the ball with the colonel. Her form had attracted the eyes of Fitzalan, and vainly he attempted to withdraw them till the lively conversation of Augusta, who honoured him with her hand, forced him to restrain his glances and pay her the sprightly attentions so generally expected. When he came to turn Malvina, he involuntarily detained her hand for a moment. She blushed, and the timid beam that stole from her half-averted eyes agitated his whole soul. Partners were changed in the course of the evening, and he seized the first opportunity that offered for engaging her. The softness of her voice, the simplicity yet elegance of her language, now captivated his heart as much as her form had charmed his eyes. Never had he before seen an object he thought half so lovely or engaging. With her he could not support that lively strain of conversation he had done with her sister. Where the heart is much interested, it will not omit of trifling. Fitzalan was now in the meridian of manhood. His stature was above the common size, and elegance and dignity were conspicuous in it. His features were regularly handsome, and the fairness of his forehead proved what his complexion had been, till change of climate and hardship had embrowned it. The expression of his countenance was somewhat plaintive. His eyes had a sweetness in them that spoke a soul of the tenderest feelings, 
and the smile that played around his mouth would have adorned a face of female beauty. When the dance with Lady Malvina was over, Lady Augusta took care for the remainder of the evening to engross all his attention. She thought him by far the handsomest man in the room, and gave him no opportunity of avoiding her. Gallantry obliged him to return her assiduities, and he was by his brother officers set down in the list of her adorers. This mistake he encouraged. He could bear raillery on an indifferent subject, and joined in the mirth which the idea of his laying siege to the young heiress occasioned. He deluded himself with no false hopes relative to the real object of his passion. He knew the obstacles between them were insuperable, but his heart was too proud to complain of fate. He shook off all appearance of melancholy and seemed more animated than ever. His visits at the Abbey became constant. Lady Augusta took them to herself and encouraged his attentions. As her mother rendered her perfect mistress of her own actions, she had generally a levee of red coats every morning in her dressing room. Lady Malvina seldom appeared. She was at those times almost always employed in reading to her father. When that was not the case, her own favourite avocations often detained her in her room, or else she wandered out among the romantic rocks on the seashore. She delighted in solitary rambles and loved to visit the old peasants who told her tales of her departed mother's goodness, drawing tears of sorrow from her eyes at the irreparable loss she had sustained by her death. Fitzalan went one morning as usual to the Abbey to pay his customary visit. As he went through the gallery which led to Lady Augusta's dressing-room, his eyes were caught by two beautiful portraits of the Earl's daughters. An artist by his express desire had come to the Abbey to draw them. They were but just finished, and that morning placed in the gallery. Lady Augusta appeared negligently reclined upon a sofa in a verdant alcove. The flowing drapery of the loose robe in which she was habited set off her fine figure. Little cupids were seen fanning aside her dark brown hair and strewing roses on her pillow. Lady Malvina was represented in the simple attire of a peasant girl, leaning on a little grassy hillock, whose foot was washed by a clear stream while her flocks browsed around, and her dog rested beneath the shade of an old tree that waved its branches over her head, and seemed sheltering her from the beams of a meridian sun. "'Beautiful portrait!' cried Fitzalan. "'Sweet resemblance of a seraphic form!' He heard a soft sigh behind him. He started, turned, and perceived Lady Malvina, in the utmost confusion, he faltered out his admiration of the pictures, and not knowing what he did, fixed his eyes on Lady Augusta's, exclaiming, "'How beautiful!' "'Tis very handsome indeed,' said Malvina, with a more pensive voice than usual, and led the way to her sister's drawing-room. Lady Augusta was spangling some ribbon, but at Fitzalan's entrance she threw it aside and asked him if he had been admiring her picture. "'Yes,' he said. "'Twas that alone had prevented his before paying his homage to the original. He proceeded in a strain of compliments, which had more gallantry than sincerity in them. In the course of their trifling, he snatched a knot of the spangled ribbon, 
and pinning it next to his heart, declared it should remain there as a talisman against all future impressions. He stole a glance at Lady Malvina. She held a book in her hand, but her eyes were turned towards him, and a deadly paleness overspread her countenance. Fitzalan's spirits vanished. He started up and declared he must be gone immediately. The dejection of Lady Malvina dwelt upon his heart. It flattered his fondness, but pained its sensibility. He left the fort in the evening, immediately after he had retired from the mess. He strolled to the seaside and rambled a considerable way among the rocks. The scene was wild and solemn. The shadows of evening were beginning to descend. The waves stole with low murmurs upon the shore, and a soft breeze gently agitated the marine plants that grew among the crevices of the rocks. Already were the sea-fowl, with harsh and melancholy cries, flocking to their nests, some lightly skimming over the water, while others were seen, like dark clouds arising from the long heath on the neighbouring hills. Fitzalan pursued his way in deep and melancholy meditation, from which a plaintive Scotch air, sung by the melting voice of harmony itself, roused him. He looked towards the spot from whence the sound proceeded, and beheld Lady Malvina standing on a low rock, a projection of it affording her support. Nothing could be more picturesque than her appearance. She looked like one of the beautiful forms which Ossian so often describes. Her white dress fluttered in the wind, and her dark hair hung dishevelled around her. Fitzalan moved softly and stopped behind her. She wept as she sung, and wiped away her tears as she ceased singing. She sighed heavily. Ah, my mother! she exclaimed. Why was Melvina left behind you? To bless and improve mankind, cried Fitzalan. She screamed and would have fallen had he not caught her in his arms. He prevailed on her to sit down upon the rock and allow him to support her till her agitation had subsided. And why, cried he, should Lady Malvina give way to melancholy? blessed as she is with all that can render life desirable? Why seek its indulgence by rambling about those dreary rocks? Fit haunts alone, he might have added, for wretchedness and me? Can I help wondering at your dejection? He continued, when to all appearance, at least, I see you possessed of everything requisite to constitute felicity. Appearances are often deceitful, said Malvina forgetting in that moment the caution she had hitherto inviolably observed of never hinting at the ill treatment she received from the Countess of Dunreath and her daughter. Appearances are often deceitful, she said, as I, alas, too fatally experience. The glare, the ostentation of wealth, a soul of sensibility would willingly resign for privacy and plainness, if they were to be attended with real friendship and sympathy? And how few, cried Fitzalan, turning his expressive eyes upon her face, can know Lady Malvina without feeling friendship for her virtues and sympathy for her sorrows? As he spoke, he pressed her hand against his heart, and she felt the knot of ribbon he had snatched from her sister. 
she instantly withdrew her hand, and darting a haughty glance at him, Captain Fitzalan, said she, you were going, I believe, to Lady Augusta. Let me not detain you. Fitzalan's passions were no longer under the dominion of reason. He tore the ribbon from his breast and flung it into the sea. Going to Lady Augusta, he exclaimed, and is her lovely sister then really deceived? Ah, Lady Malvina, I now gaze on the dear attraction that drew me to the abbey. The feelings of a real, a hopeless passion could ill support raillery or observation. I hid my passion within the recesses of my heart, and gladly allowed my visits to be placed to the account of an object truly indifferent, that I might have opportunities of seeing an object I adored. Malvina blushed and trembled. Fitzalan, cried she after a pause, I detest deceit. I abhor it too, Lady Malvina, said he. But why should I now endeavour to prove my sincerity when I know it is so immaterial? Excuse me for what I have already uttered, and believe that, though susceptible, I am not aspiring. He then presented his hand to Malvina. She descended from her seat, and they walked towards the abbey. Lady Malvina's pace was slow, and her blushes, had Fitzalan looked at her, would have expressed more pleasure than resentment. She seemed to expect a still further declaration, but Fitzalan was too confused to speak, nor indeed was it his intention again to indulge himself on the dangerous subject. They proceeded in silence. At the abbey gate they stopped, and he wished her good night. "'Shall we not soon see you at the abbey?' exclaimed Lady Malvina in a flurried voice which seemed to say she thought his adieu rather a hasty one. "'No, my lovely friend,' cried Fitzalan, pausing, while he looked upon her with the most impassioned tenderness. "'In future I shall confine myself chiefly to the fort.' "'Do you dread an invasion?' asked she, smiling, while a stolen glance of her eyes gave peculiar meaning to her words. "'I long dreaded that,' cried he in the same strain and my fears were well founded, but I must now muster all my powers to dislodge the enemy. He kissed her hand and precipitately retired. Lady Malvina repaired to her chamber in such a tumult of pleasure as she had never before experienced. She admired Fitzalan from the first evening she beheld him. Though his attentions were directed to her sister, the language of his eyes, to her, contradicted any attachment these attentions might have intimated. His gentleness and sensibility seemed congenial to her own. Hitherto she had been the slave of tyranny and caprice, and now, for the first time, experienced that soothing tenderness her wounded feelings had so long sighed for. She was agitated and delighted. She overlooked every obstacle to her wishes, and waited impatiently a further explanation of Fitzalan's sentiments. Far different were his feelings from hers. To know he was beloved could scarcely yield him pleasure when he reflected on his hopeless situation, which forbade his availing himself of any advantage that knowledge might have afforded. Of a union, indeed, he did not dare to think, since its consequences, he knew, must be destruction. 
for rigid and austere as the earl was represented, he could not flatter himself he would ever pardon such a step, and the means of supporting Lady Malvina, in any degree of comfort, he did not possess himself. He determined as much as possible to avoid her presence, and regretted continually having yielded to the impulse of his heart and revealed his love, since he believed it had augmented hers. By degrees he discontinued his visits at the Abbey, but he often met Lady Malvina at parties in the neighbourhood. Caution, however, always sealed his lips, and every appearance of particularity was avoided. The time now approached for the departure of the regiment from Scotland, and Lady Malvina, instead of the explanation she so fondly expected, so ardently desired, saw Fitzalan studious to avoid her. The disappointment this conduct gave rise to was too much for the tender and romantic heart of Malvina to bear without secretly repining. Society grew irksome. She became more than ever attached to solitary rambles, which gave opportunities of indulging her sorrows without restraint. Sorrows, pride often reproached her for experiencing. It was within a week of the change of garrison, when Malvina repaired one evening to the rock where Fitzalan had disclosed his tenderness. A similarity of feeling had led him thither. He saw his danger, but he had no power to retreat. He sat down by Malvina, and they conversed for some time on indifferent subjects. At last, after a pause of a minute, Malvina exclaimed, "'You go then, Fitzalan, never, never, I suppose, to return here again.' "'Tis probable I may not indeed,' said he. "'Then we shall never meet again,' while a trickling tear stole down her lovely cheek, which, tinged as it was with the flush of agitation, looked now like a half-blown rose, moistened with the dews of early morning. "'Yes, my lovely friend,' said he, "'we shall meet again.' We shall meet in a better place. In that heaven, continued he, sighing, and laying his cold, trembling hand upon hers, which will recompense all our sufferings. You are melancholy to-night, Fitzalan, cried Lady Malvina, in a voice scarcely articulate. Oh, can you wonder at it? exclaimed he, overcome by her emotion, and forgetting in a moment all his resolutions, Oh, can you wonder at my melancholy, when I know not but that this is the last time I shall see the only woman I ever loved, when I know that in bidding her adieu I resign all the pleasure, the happiness of my life. Malvina could no longer restrain her feelings. She sunk upon his shoulder and wept. Good heavens! cried Fitzalan, almost trembling beneath the lovely burden he supported. What a cruel situation is mine! But, Malvina, I will not, cannot plunge you in destruction. Led by necessity, as well as choice, to embrace the profession of a soldier, I have no income but what is derived from that profession. Though my own distresses I could bear with fortitude, yours would totally unman me. Nor would my honour be less injured than my peace, were you involved in difficulties on my account." Our separation is therefore, alas, inevitable. Oh, no! exclaimed Malvina. The difficulties you have mentioned will vanish. 
My father's affections were early alienated from me, and my fate is of little consequence to him. Nay, I have reason to believe he will be glad of an excuse for leaving his large possessions to Augusta, and, oh, how little shall I envy her those possessions, if the happy destiny I now look forward to is mine? As she spoke, her mild eyes rested on the face of Fitzalan, who clasped her to his bosom in a sudden transport of tenderness. But though my father is partial to Augusta, she continued, I am sure he will not be unnatural to me, and though he may withhold affluence, he will, I am confident, allow me a competence. Nay, Lady Dunreath, I believe, in pleasure at my removal from the Abbey, would, if he hesitated in that respect, become my intercessor. The energy with which Malvina spoke convinced Filsalam of the strength of her affection. An ecstasy never before felt pervaded his soul at the idea of being so loved. Vainly did Prudence whisper that Malvina might be deluding herself with false hopes. The suggestions of love triumphed over every consideration, and again folding the fair being he held in his arms to his heart, he softly asked, would she, at all events, unite her destiny with his? Lady Malvina, who firmly believed what she had said to him would really happen, and who deemed a separation from him the greatest misfortune which could possibly befall her, blushed, and faltering yielded a willing consent. The means of accomplishing their wishes now occupied their thoughts, Fitzalan's imagination was too fertile not soon to suggest a scheme which had a probability of success. He resolved to entrust the chaplain of the regiment with the affair, and request his attendance the ensuing night in the chapel of the abbey, where Lady Malvina promised to meet them with her maid, on whose secrecy she thought she could rely. It was settled that Fitzalan should pay a visit the next morning at the abbey, and give Malvina a certain sign if he succeeded with the chaplain. The increasing darkness at length reminded them of the lateness of the hour. Fitzalan conducted Malvina to the abbey gate, where they separated, each involved in a tumult of hopes, fears and wishes. End of chapter 2, part 1